Amen. Let's turn, if you will, to Hosea, and I'd like for you to actually turn to chapter 1 again. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Hosea, and uh, uh, I want to kind of go back a little bit and add a few things pertaining to the prophetic implications that we find in the book of Hosea. We've looked at the, the very reason for this particular prophecy. The reason being that God has been trying to warn the northern kingdom of Israel of their sin and primarily of their idolatry in worshiping Baal or Baal and other gods. And of course, the Lord considers his relationship to Israel as a marriage. And the indictment that he wants to bring upon Israel is that they have committed adultery, spiritual adultery, by going after other gods. And to present this to Israel, he sends his prophets, but especially the prophet Hosea, or Hosea, who, he is, who, who is told straight on in, in the very beginning of this particular uh, prophecy that he is to marry a harlot. He is to marry a wife of whoredoms, as it says, and children of whoredoms. All of this as an object lesson to the northern kingdom of Israel because he has sent primarily to them. Out of this particular relationship with Gomer, who is the wife of uh, Hosea, come three children. We are sure that the first child is theirs, Yezreel or Yezreel, actually, Yezreel, or Jezreel in the English. And then there were two others, but it is not clear that these two were Hosea's children. Therefore comes the understanding of the fact that this was, these are children of whoredoms. But their names are Lo-Ami and and Lo-Ruhama. Lo-Ami is, you're not my people. Lo-Ruhama, you're not going to get mercy for this. So these are the things that we need to have established before we come back to this little section that we want to begin with tonight. And that would be in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. And we'll get there in just a moment. So I just wanted to establish again, if you will, the foundation for the understanding of the prophecy of Hosea. So it is very clear then that when you study all of the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, or as in the Hebrew, the Tanakh, which are the Jewish scriptures, and the Brit Hadashah, which is the New Testament, that in studying them, we are commanded to walk in the truth. We are commanded to know the truth, and we are commanded to walk in the truth. We're commanded to live in truth. And in so doing, this is what pleases God. It, it is no circum, uh, uh, happenstance, I should say. It is no happenstance that one of the grave sins uh, that are 
that, that uh, is put out to people uh, to say that these are, these are sins that can, that can keep you from heaven, and that would be one of them is, is, is lying, you know, doing not the truth, speaking not the truth. So it's very clear then in the scriptures that, that, we're, to come, that we're to walk in, in truth. Even in our courts of law, if we're called upon to give testimony, we, we swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God. Now some people don't use that last phrase anymore, but still it's a matter of speaking the whole truth. And when it comes down to it, partial truth as believers in Jesus Christ, partial truth, and really for everyone involved, because all will be judged, of course, living in the dead, all will be judged. But partial truth, you know, some truth, a bit of truth, a little bit of truth, a little bit more truth, more truth, less truth. Partial truth is no truth at all. Partial truth is no truth at all. And I say this because it is of great importance to note that there are theologians today who have or, or stand on partial truth. But they don't rely on all the truth. This is what I, let me tell you what I mean. Because as we're studying the prophetic book of Hosea, we have come to discover that the Lord has said some very harsh words toward the children of Israel, in particular through the names of the children of Hosea. He's spoken very harsh words. He has said to them, I will not have any mercy for you, Loruhama. I will have no mercy for you, and you're no longer my people, Loami. You're no longer my people. Period. This is what he has said. This is what we've read so far. Now, the Lord did really say these things. But the question that needs to be asked is, but is this the whole truth? Is this the whole truth and the only truth? Is this the whole truth? You see, because there are those who have built and now hold the theological position that those statements made by the Lord toward Israel are truly now the state for Israel. In other words, they are true for Israel. God no longer has any mercy for them, and they are no longer his people. There are people who hold to a theological position that believe that uh, God no longer has mercy for them, that they are no longer his people. Certain positions like replacement theology, which we've talked about many times, something called preterism, preterism being, of course, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the position that says that all, all scripture, or all, all prophecy, I should say, all prophecy has already been fulfilled. There's no more prophecy to be fulfilled. That's preterism. This is a position as well held by many emerging or emergent churches and many amillennial or reformed churches and their eschatology being that Israel no longer receives the blessings of God and will no longer receive the blessings that were meant for them but all the blessings are now to go to the church. So to these positions, to them, to their thinking, God said to Israel, you are not my people ever again. There is no mercy for you ever again. End of story. That's what they believe. This is the reason why many people in the church today would rather support the the, the Palestinian causes than, than support Israel. When we look at it from the political positions that people are holding today in the churches, and many of these that I've already mentioned. But 
now when you read the whole truth. So now we're looking at the whole truth. When you read the whole truth, this is not the position of the Word of God. And this is not the position that the Word of God reveals. Chapter 1, verse 10. That's where we're going to begin reading again. If you will, this is a review for where we've been, except I'm adding some stronger positions when it comes to prophecy. Because this is a prophetic book. And it isn't just about what happened then. It is about what is going to take place when Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus comes. So chapter 1, verse 10 is actually the beginning of chapter 2 of Hosea in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible, if you will. Chapter 2 begins with verse 10 of chapter 1 in the English uh, version or the, uh, uh, of, of the scriptures. And, and always keep in mind, if you will, the name of the prophecy. The prophecy was given to a man named Hosea. And we said this is, this is God's salvation. God's salvation. But literally, the name Hosea means the one who makes salvation. The one who makes salvation. Keep that in mind. This is important for us to understand. So when we begin in, in what the Hebrew scriptures call the first verse of chapter 2, it's in verse 10 of chapter 1. Yet the number of the children of Israel, notice, shall be as the sand of the sea. Now I think that the word yet gives us an indication that something's a little different than just what we read about the judgment of God upon his people. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it, is, it was said unto them, you are not my people. Now notice what it says. In the place where it is said of them, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. So immediately now we realize that whatever he said at first was certainly true, but it wasn't the whole truth. It wasn't to say, you know, this is all, this is it, I'm done with you. No, because of your sin, I'm going to send you into captivity. I'm going to bring the Assyrians down. The Assyrians are going to take over. It is as if there is no mercy for you here. In this place where you should have been worshiping me, instead you're worshiping other gods, and therefore you're going to be in captivity. And it will be as if you are not my people anymore. Because understand this, if they were his people, or at least if they were his people in this understanding, then what, would he not keep uh, the Assyrians from attacking them and taking over them and then taking them uh, captive? Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying here? See? No? Maybe so? Okay. And then verse 11 it says, Then shall the children of Judah... And the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head. And they shall come out of the, up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Yezreel. Yezreel. And then he goes on and says this. And I want to read the first nine verses because we've already studied this. And we're going to come back next time and just kind of tie it all together with the last part of chapter 2. And then we'll be done with chapter 2. But let's read on. Notice verse 1. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama. But now it says, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. Neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children for they be children of whoredoms for their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully for she said I will go after my lovers 
that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink, saying that, of course, all of these other gods and all of these other uh, ways of, of doing things are what are feeding her now and, and, and clothing her and everything, but not the God that she was to be married to. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but, they shall, but shall not find them. And then shall they, as she say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then was it better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. And therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. So when we see in the first chapter the Lord calling his prophet Hosea to marry Gomer, an idolatrous, an adulterous, I should say, harlot, to be an object lesson for the kingdom of Israel, to show them how wickedly rebellious and disobedient they were as a people, so much so that the Lord would say to them through the names of Hosea's children, Yisrael, which means God scatters. God scatters in judgment. Lo Ruhama, no mercy. And lo Ami, you are not my people, I will not be your God. But as we keep reading the text, as we keep reading the text, we begin to see the nature of God. We begin to see the nature of God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God that the Bible tells us is the God of life, not of death. The God that the scriptures tell us is a God of love and mercy and grace. And so what we see taking place here is the outcome of a covenant relationship with God. Now these are things that we didn't cover before. But now we're digging a little deeper here and it's necessary for us to do so. Notice, if you will, go back to verse 10 of Hosea 1. And remember, Hosea 1.10 is chapter 2, verse 1 in the Hebrew Scriptures. So the beginning of chapter 2 is actually beginning with this hope. Yet, the number of the children of Israel, if you mark your Bibles, underline children, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, You are the sons of the living God. You are the sons, underline the word sons, children and sons in that, in that verse. It's the same Hebrew word. Let's look closely at it. Closely at the word children. In the Hebrew, it is the word benai, benai. And it comes from the word, the, the root word ben. Uh, you've done good studies of the, of, the Hebrews, uh, of the Hebrew scriptures, you know that ben means son. Benai is sons or children. But the word ben is important here to understand and the reason for the usage of the word in children and sons is that because is because it carries the meaning ben carries the meaning one who inherits one who inherits now this is what i i didn't want you to miss in this passage this is a prophecy of the last days this is a prophecy of the last days. Even though the tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel are going to be sent into exile in Assyria, there will indeed be a restoration in the latter days. Now there are actually some, some good uh, Messianic Jewish rabbis as well as Jewish rabbis who believe that 
Israel is still in exile today because they're not fully in the land today. They're not fully returned. You know, for the longest time, there were more Jews in, North, in New York than there were in Israel. Now, some of that is changing a little bit now. But nonetheless, you know, that's because people are, 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 uh, are making aliyah. The, the Jews are going back into the land. They're becoming citizens of Israel again. And, uh, you know, just, just recently, of course, they had their 70th anniversary uh, of, of the state of Israel uh, back in May. So uh, that was a, a, a great turning point for, for the whole nation of Israel. What is, what, is, what is being said here in this particular verse is that they're going to be great in number, such as the sand of the sea. And in the place where it was said to them, notice in the very same verse, in the place where it was said to them that they were not his people, it will be said of them, you are the sons, benign, you are the sons of the living God. In the very same place. So as I said before, those people who hold to the fact that, you know, that, or, or not, not, a, no, not hold to the fact, hold to what they think is the fact that Israel is no longer blessed by God, have not read on the whole truth. Here's the whole truth. God has made a covenant with his people. And the covenant has been made in such a way that says it is made and kept on both sides by God made and kept both sides by God. It is a unilateral covenant. It's not multilateral, it's unilateral. The sons of the living God. Now it's no accident that the statement made at the end of that verse is sons of the living God. The living God. Because we need to see and know that he is indeed a God of the living. But also understand that living doesn't mean it's just a matter of being one who brings conception along and people get born. It is also reflecting the understanding of giving life to that which was dead. Giving life to that which was dead. Our God is the God that makes alive. Out of the dust of the ground, God created man. Our God is the God that makes alive. Our God also is the God that resurrects. Our God can breathe life into that which is dead. I want you to remember that the God who breathed life into the, the man that he, that he created is this very same God that we're speaking of. Genesis 2 verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. There was no life as such in the dust of the ground. I mean, we have dust all around us wherever we are. As a matter of fact, we live in the land of dust. And dust blows around quite a bit in a good way, right? In a great way. I don't mean a good way, I mean in a great way in the sense that there's a lot of dust around. But this dust in and of itself does not speak to us. It bothers us. It gets into every place, you know, that we got, you know, got to clean out our eyes and our ears and everything else. And God took the dust of the ground and, and, and gave life to it. Well, he is also the God who told the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37. Verses 4 through 6. And actually, you should read all of chapter 37, but we don't have time to do it today. We studied it not too long ago as when we were uh, uh, in the book of Ezekiel. Verse 4 says again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones. Now, what does he find? He finds a valley of dry bones. What, is the dry bones, what do the dry bones represent? But death. Bone upon bone, piled upon piles of bones is death. A nation dead. Prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. May, may, may I tell you just quickly here, 
Satan cannot boast to this. Satan cannot give life. Satan's good at taking life. Satan's good at, 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 at death, but he's, he cannot create life. He's not a creator. He's not equal to God. Satan, folks, is a created being. Understand this. Our God alone gives life. Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and I will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. How many people are breathing uh, biologically, breathing physically today, and have no clue that God is the Lord? And even with their very breath, they curse him. They curse him with their lives. They curse him with their actions. They curse him with their words and their thoughts. So we have to then consider that God is not only the God who gives physical life, he's the God who gives spiritual life. And that is the greater life that he gives. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul in the New Testament, Brit Harashah, the New Testament in Hebrew. Paul says this, and you, speaking to the church, hath he quickened. The word quickened means made alive. And you has he made alive who were dead, dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to Satan, in other words, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, times past in the lusts of our flesh. Conversation, by the way, is, is conduct in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We were by nature children of wrath, but we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, even as others. But God, but God who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, has made us alive together with Christ by grace, God's undeserved favor, by grace you are saved. Undeserved favor. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. But, but understand, in the ages to come, what is the ages to come? Eternity. In the ages to come. If God gives you spiritual life in Christ Jesus, you will live forever. These bodies won't. but who you are spiritually will. This is just an earthly tent. It goes through all kinds of things on this, on this, on this planet of ours. It's a matter of God's grace that we don't just fly right off of it someday. And when you look at the news and see what's happening in the world and see how crazy things are, you know, sometimes I'm surprised that the world hasn't imploded already. The good thing to know is that when 
you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have one thing that you can do, and that is wait for the Lord to come again because he said, I'm coming for you. I'm coming. Be ready. He said that 2,000 years ago. Well, it's almost time. It's almost time for Jesus to come. And he goes on and he says that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. By God's undeserved favor are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. You didn't save yourselves in other words. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. And so many people today are trying to work their way into heaven, trying to work their way into, into some paradise. But you don't work yourself into heaven. You, you can't. We're sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God in and of ourselves. For we are his workmanship. If every day we would give thanks to God for this little phrase, Lord, thank you that you have fashioned me. I haven't fashioned myself. You know, before we came to the Lord Jesus Christ, we tried to fashion ourselves. We tried every fad, every, every fashion, everything, you know. We were cool, you know bell bottoms, platform shoes. All right, I know I'm talking about the 70s and 60s. Long hair, beards, oh, that's back. You know, then it's gone, then it's back again. I mean, that's the craziness of this world, isn't it? Oh, Father, thank you for just being the one to fashion us, to make us what you want us to be. For we are his workmanship, poema, poema. We're his poem, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We're created to do good works. Not to be saved by good works, but to do good works because we're saved by his grace, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. We are to walk in those works that God is producing in and through us. The wonders of God giving life to that which is dead. Go to Colossians chapter 2 for just a moment, verses 13 through 15. Colossians 2 verses 13 through 15. This is really now focuses more on the means of how this is done for us. Verse 13, and you being dead in your sins. There it is again, being dead in your sins. You may be very much alive physically, but you are just dead completely spiritually. He says, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, with Christ in other words, has he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So it isn't just about being made alive and being made new. It is about knowing that we have been forgiven for everything that we've ever done. And it says in verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. The law, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And now we know where our sins have ended up. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. How? By rising from the dead. Jesus said, I'm going to die, but in three days, I'm going to be alive again. The very same Jesus I referred to earlier when I said Yeshua, the Mashiach, the Messiah, 
He is the one who is going to restore his people. We'll see that as we go on in the book of Hosea. So getting back to our text in Hosea, let's consider further the prophetic implications of the next verse, verse 11. Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hosea 1 verse 11. It says, then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great shall be the day of Yezreel. There's no J in the Hebrew, and so it's pronounced like a Y, Yezreel. The first part of the verse, verse 11, gives us a last day's context based upon the promise of God to give his people a new covenant. It is based upon the promise of God to give his people a new covenant. Now, where do we find that? Well, we find that actually in the book of Jeremiah. And when you look at Jeremiah, and you know, we're talking again about a new covenant that makes sense for us because Paul talks about that new covenant based upon the work of Christ on our behalf as one who took upon himself flesh to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But going back to Jeremiah, verse, chapter 31, verse 31, and beginning there, notice what it says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Now, understand that Jeremiah was a prophet that, that somewhat bridged both uh, the, uh, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, uh, mostly the southern. But uh, nonetheless, he was during that very same time of, uh, of Hosea. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, uh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice back in verse 11 again of, of Hosea chapter 1 that Judah and Israel are mentioned together. So keep that in your mind. Behold the days come saith the Lord that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, the southern kingdom. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. So again, notice how the Lord uses that picture of, a, of being a husband to Israel. But he says, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Now, where was the law written before? It was written on stone. It was written by the finger of God on stone in the book of Exodus. Now he says, I'm going to write my law in their inward parts, in their hearts, and will be their God. And notice this, and they shall be Ami, my people. They shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them, Unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This new covenant that the Lord will make with his people will give Israel the inner ability to be obedient to the Lord's righteous standards. They, they didn't have that before. They had the law outside. But now with the law inside, written on their hearts, they would have the ability then to be obedient to the Lord's righteous standards as never before. And folks, let, let me just tell you why Paul finds this to be most important to share to the church. Because this is what has happened to us. 
when we have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior and as our God, and he has been put into our lives. He says, I will be in you and you will be in me. And in this particular relationship that we now have and fellowship with the God who created the heavens and the earth and the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have the law in us because he is the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the word of God. He is all of the word of God because he's the logos of God. And that's in us. And in the book of Colossians, it tells, us that, it tells us that Jesus Christ is in us, the hope of glory. We have no hope without Christ. We have no hope for eternity without Jesus. And not just an understanding in the mind, but a, but a, a, a communion in the heart. This is where he is. And so Israel will have that ability in this new covenant to obey the Lord's righteous standards as never before. And thus, when they do this, it will be to enjoy all of God's blessings and to have the fullness of joy of having their Messiah within. But if you'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, this is a passage that bears out where, where that new covenant is going for Israel, all of Israel. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 28. Notice what God says to his people. For I will take you from among the nations, the heathen. For I will take you, uh, uh, excuse me, for I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries. Where are the Jews today? Where have they been? They've been in all countries. And will bring you into your own land. And then, oh, by the way, that's the whole truth. That wasn't, whole, wasn't held by those who say that Israel has lost favor with God. They've lost their, you know, their position. They've lost mercy. Forgiveness. They're no longer forgiven. They're no longer his people. Yes, God said that, but what? That was only partial. This is the point of what the, what the rest of Hosea is saying. Anyway, getting back here, it says, and I will bring you into your own land, and then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. Now, there's a reference in, in the New Testament concerning being washed by the regener regeneration, being made new again by the washing of the water of the word of God in our lives. So he says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. And then he says this, a new heart. Now, you go back to Jeremiah, what does Jeremiah say? God is going to write his law upon their hearts. But here's, here's the key about that. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart of your, out of your flesh. The stony heart. What had the law been written upon? in the time of Moses, on Sinai, on stone. It was a picture of what their hearts were going to be like. They would have, this, they would have the law on stone tablets. Stone is hard. The law in and of itself is hard. Hard as rock. Nothing wrong with the law. I read Psalm 19. It talks about how precious the law is to us and should be. But oh, it's so hard. 
He says, I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now understand this too, you know, we talk about the flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. No, he's talking about something that there's a reality to how we live daily. And he's going to write his law on something that is soft. And alive and beating. A stony heart doesn't beat. <laughs> a heart of flesh beats. By the way, as I look around, I am so thankful that your hearts are beating right now. As you're alive, you've got a pulse. If you need to check it, go ahead. But I know you're alive. I will take out away the stony heart out of your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will put, now he says, I'll put my spirit within you. Spirit in spirit. Remember what he said, a new heart will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. A spirit that's alive, not dead. A spirit that's alive. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, in my law. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. The ability, you see, to keep the law. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people. Ah, Ami, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Isn't it great to know that our God has the tendency, <laughs> he has the tendency to take that which is dead and make it alive again. Aren't you glad for that? Isn't it great to know? Isn't it great to know that our God can take a people that had been separated by man's doing and bring them back together and make them one again? Isn't it great to know that? How great is our God and how great is his name? And so it is significant, you see, that while the prophecy of Hosea is primarily for the children of Israel, the ten northern tribes who were stationed in Samaria and had their altars in the land of Dan up in the north, it is so significant that while the prophecy is primarily for the children of Israel, when the children of Judah are mentioned in this prophecy, as we've already read in verse 11, when the children of Judah are mentioned in this prophecy, it carries great last days prophetic implications. I want you to consider verse 11 of chapter one, uh, chapter one again. Look at it and look at the very middle phrase now. We just talked about the first part. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together. And then it says, and appoint themselves one head. Let's stop there. Appoint themselves one head. One of the better Hebrew translations of that uh, phrase, and appoint themselves one head, states, and I will place for them one head. God is speaking, I will place for them. I will appoint for them. I will place for them. I will put for them one head. The word or the phrase one head is the Hebrew phrase rosh echad, rosh echad. Now we studied the word rosh back in the book of Ezekiel. Rosh, rosh literally just means head or in this case leader because it means one who leads as well. So rosh echad is one leader but the key to this understanding is the word one. The word one, there's, there's actually a couple of words in the Hebrew for the, 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 the word one in the English. One is a very, just a, the pure number one. But the word one that is used here is uniquely related to God. It is the word echad, echad, E-C-H-A-D, echad. And it is the word that we find in the Shema, of Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
The Shema is verse 4. Simply, it is just stating the very first phrase. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echod, or Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Echad. That is not the number one. This, this, is, this is the word that describes a composite unity. It is a word for one that describes a composite unity such as the triune God. One God in three persons. And so the Lord is going to give his people a godly leader. Where are we going with this? We all should know. If we're talking about the end times, if we're talking about the latter days, if we're talking about the last days that involves Israel, which by the way, if you remember, Israel is a nation again. 70 years now, that's the fulfillment of a, a, what's considered a long generation. But nonetheless, it is a generation that is leading now toward the fulfillment of all prophetic scripture. Scripture cannot be fulfilled without the nation of Israel. That is why it is just absurd to think that all prophecy has already been fulfilled. I have other words for that, but I don't want to use them tonight. And so God is going to give his people a godly leader, which can only be, can only be. The anointed one. The anointed one, <clears throat> transliterated, of course, in, in, in more Roman or Greek, or Greek or English language, would be Christos or Christ. But the anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah, Messiah. Messiah is the anointed one, the Mashiach of Israel, God's only begotten son, God's only begotten son. There are a number of places in the book of Psalms. Psalm 110 is one place. Psalm 2 is another place. Psalms you can look up, they're not long Psalms anyway, but there is mention, the Lord said to my Lord, yet there's only one Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. The conversation, in a sense, is of this one echad, this composite unity. Yeshua. Ha-Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah. This whole section then, what we begin reading in verse 10 of chapter 1 and then go into verse 1 of chapter 2, this whole section is based on the hope. It is based on the hope. Now, that's significant uh, because... The hope in Hebrew is Hatikva. Hatikva. Hatikva is the Israeli national anthem of today. The hope. It's a beautiful national anthem. But this whole section is based on the hope that the one who said, here's the hope that the one who said, I will not show you mercy, will indeed be merciful. The one who said, you're not my people and I will not be your God, the hope is that he will say, you are my people and I will be your God. You are my people and I am your God. And what did Jesus say? I am the Good Shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And when we come to the Good Shepherd, we come to the God who says, you're my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I will protect you, and I will keep you. Consider the next passage in verse 11. It's the passage right after what we just looked at. It says, and they shall come up out of the land. And they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Yezreel. From all the places that the Jewish people have been scattered, the Lord is going to gather them and return them back to the land. Folks, that's been happening not just 70 years. It's been happening even before that uh, in, in smaller cases, but after 1948, there was and, and, and still continues to be a great pouring into the land of Israel by the Jewish people. And he's gathering them and he's returning them back to the land. Now look, look at the last phrase, for great shall be the day of Yisrael. Now the context is this, <clears throat> to add that particular phrase. The context is, <clears throat> it is a last day's context that brings us to the valley of God's judgment. Yisrael, of course, as I said, is, is uh, dealing with a valley where, uh, the valley of Jezreel, as, as, as it's called, where there was great judgment over something that was done uh, by Yehu back, uh, you know, in the, in the king, the time of the kings. But, but the point is that when you look at it forward, you're looking at something called Armageddon. You are looking at a judgment that is coming upon the earth at a certain place. It is spoken of in the book of Revelation, the place that is called Har Megiddo, Armageddon. So great is going to be the judgment, in other words. But understand this. Great is going to be the judgment, the punishment, if you will, upon the enemies of Israel. Upon the enemies of Israel. Those who stand in opposition to the purposes and the plans of God. And time and time again, we have seen that. We have seen it in the books, in, in, in all the prophetic books as well as in the book of Revelation, but we have seen it in all the books of prophecy, that those who stand in opposition to the purposes and the plans of God are going to be judged by God himself. But redemption, and this is why we need to keep this in context, redemption and victory and salvation, remember this is the key to this understanding of, of, of the prophecy of Hosea, it is his name, God will make salvation. So redemption and victory and salvation and restoration will be given for his covenant people. The restoration of the children of Israel. This is why then it says there at the end of verse 10, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. So we have to look at all the context of every prophecy to know that when he's speaking of Israel as, as the, the northern kingdom of Israel and when he's pointing using both Judah and Israel together as pointing to an end time or a latter day uh, uh, event then, and then this is how we place everything in its context because prof uh, prophecy or prophetic uh, uh, verses are, are, are very hard sometimes to, to follow unless you look carefully at, at the context. So now we go back into the days of Hosea and Gomer and the three children that were born. Notice verse one of chapter two. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami. The word brethren is important because we're, we're dealing with the, the brothers of, uh, in Israel, okay? But, but nonetheless, it's, it's using the context of the object lesson of the children. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhamah. What, what is God promising here? Because there's a promise here. He's promising that those who are not his people are going to be his people, Ami, and that is going to come about by Ruhamah. It is going to come about by mercy. It is going to come about by mercy until a person, 
And, and, and I hope that we can get this tonight. If we get anything, we need to get this. That until a person is wise enough and humble enough to understand their need for God's mercy, nothing is going to happen in their life that's going to be pleasing to them. Nothing. Nothing is going to uplift them. Nothing is going to transform them because everything begins with God's mercy. Everything begins with God's mercy. There's one position that we all need to understand. And that one position is this. We are in desperate need of God's mercy. There was a song called the Song of Moses after the children of Israel escaped Pharaoh's armies at the Red Sea. And part of that song or song is in Exodus 15 verses 11 through 13. And we used to sing this as a chorus and it's, it's just a, a beautiful little chorus but We'll have to learn it another time. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretched out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy has led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. Thou in thy mercy has led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. There's, there's no redemption without God's mercy. The psalmist David spoke many, many verses of Scripture about His mercy, about God's mercy. Psalm 5-7, But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Psalm 6, verses 1-4, through O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak, O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. Oh, David cried out for God's mercy so often. Psalm 25, verses 16 through 18. Turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Oh, bring thou me out of my distresses. Look upon mine affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. And that's what God does in his mercy is forgive us. Psalm 51 verse 1 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. This is why he says later on, and I believe it's verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart, these, O oh God, thou wilt not despise. Lastly, I, I, I'll take you to Titus chapter 3 in the, in the New Testament because Paul talks about the mercies of God often as well. But he says here in Titus, verses 3, 3 through 7, and this is something I want to connect this to what we've said so far before we close. Paul said, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, and, you know, don't sit there going, moi? <laughs> oh, we were sometimes foolish, weren't we? Sometimes we're foolish now. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, 
not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs. Ah, benai! Those who will inherit that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope, the hope, chatikva, of eternal life. So I pray that we've, we've touched in a greater sense the prophetic implications of what we've already studied, adding to that, supplementing what we've done so far. We'll get back where we are here, but it's going to take us through the rest of the chapter next time.